we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hey! Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red Handed, and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hello, Becky. How are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you, Melanie? I'm good. It's still a little chilly, but we're starting to warm up a little bit, which has been nice. Bring on that sun. I am ready for those high, high temperatures. Mel and I are in the desert. Yes. So I'm looking forward to those days that it's 110. I love it. And we just spend all of our time in the swimming pool. At the pool the entire time. Yes. So, Becky, have you seen those videos or maybe even seen it in real life of a building imploding for construction? I love those videos, just like every crazy person out there. I love watching the videos. They do it a lot in Vegas. We're close to Vegas, and yes. they blow up those old casinos. I haven't seen it in person, though. I would love to see it in person, but I haven't either. The videos are cool to watch, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. They are pretty interesting. So, well, we've got our second case involving explosions. So are you ready to get into this one? I'm ready. Let's do it. So we're set in August 1980, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are recording their double fantasy album, which I love watching the whales. Do you know that song? I don't. It's before your time now. Oh, because I'm not as old as you. No. <laughs> you love reading that up, don't you? I do every time. But I love that song. Um, so yeah, John and Yoko are hitting the charts. Hurricane Allen has just struck Brownsville, Texas, with winds upward of 190 miles per hour. Wow. Dallas was the top TV show. That summer, the country was waiting to see who shot JR. Smokey and the Bandit 2 was number one at the box office, with Burt Reynolds as every woman's favorite leading man. Oh, he was good looking. 
Our story today takes place in Stateline, Nevada, a small tourist stopover straddling the borders of California and Nevada. Have you ever been to Stateline? I haven't. I've been to the Reno area, but I've never been to Stateline. Okay. With just 1,300 residents, the town was mostly employed by the casinos that entertained passersby as they emptied their pockets and before they hit the road again. One of these was Harvey's Hotel and Casino. Harvey Gross was the owner, and he was a familiar face to regulars. He enjoyed entertaining his guests personally for years and years. Now, Mel, are you a casino person? I do like to go to the casino from time to time. I hate the smell of them, but I do. Well, I they, like, they don't smoke them anymore. I so, know, yeah. but they still smell the ones in Vegas. You can mm-hmm. just like in the carpet. What's your game of choice? I like playing bingo. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I, never played bingo. I would love to. Let's go. Let's go play bingo. So okay. I do like to play blackjack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the craps table. Oh, do you? I love the craps table. Okay. Mm-hmm. We but, need to but go. I'm cheap. So once I'm up like 50 bucks, I'm like, that's it for me. I'm done. Yeah. Tap right. out. <laughs> Gross had started his casino in 1944. It was just a small cabin with a blackjack table and a couple of slot machines. I do like slot machines too. They are fun. He had grown the business to an 11 story hotel and a full gaming casino. So our story begins at 5.30 a.m. on Tuesday, August 26, 1980, the year I was born, by the way. The receiving docks at Harvey's Casino were busy with early morning deliveries. Semi-trucks backed up to the bay doors, ready to deliver clean linens, fresh food, and all the supplies needed. A white van with California plates backed up to an open dock with a delivery, a new copy machine labeled IBM. I remember IBM. All of my elementary school computers were IBM. They were like a a leading brand in computers. Do you remember IBM? I do remember Mm -hmm. IBM, yes. So the delivery man had the task of carting the new copy machine up to the executive offices by a trolley, like a push cart. A security guard gave them directions along with access up to the offices on the second floor. So using the service elevator, the three men worked very cautiously and carefully to move the big device. They removed the machine from the large trolley and centered it on four wooden blocks. Next to the device, one of the three men left a typewritten note with to the management, important, displayed boldly across the top. The men then promptly left the building. What followed this casual office delivery was 36 hours of terror, mass evacuations, and the largest explosive the FBI had ever faced. It brought a small Nevada-California border town to its knees and kept investigators chasing a ghost for over a year. The morning after the delivery, just after 6 a.m., a Harvey's Hotel and Casino security guard was making his normal morning rounds throughout the building. Strangely, he noticed the doors to the executive offices were jammed. Broken toothpicks and glue had been forced into the locks. It took him a few minutes of cleaning out the locks, but he was able to finally open the doors. Seems like something, maybe you could assume some kids had done this. I could totally see my kids jamming a lock. I would not be the least bit surprised. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) As he entered, he found a huge metal box sitting in the middle of the room. On the floor, laying next to the device, he found a letter. The letter consisted of seven clearly labeled sections. Mike, who has become our professional narrator Mm -hmm. now, will read the first three sections for us. To the management. Stern warning to the management and bomb squad. Do not move or tilt this bomb. 
because the mechanism controlling the detonators in it will set it off at a movement of less than 0.01 of the open-end Richter scale. Don't try to flood or gas the bomb. There is a float switch and an atmospheric pressure switch set at 26.00 to 33.00. Both are attached to detonators. Do not try to take it apart. The flathead screws are also attached to triggers and as much as one quarter to three quarters of a turn will cause an explosion. In other words, this bomb is so sensitive that the slightest movement, either inside or outside, will cause it to explode. This bomb can never be dismantled or disarmed without causing an explosion, not even by the creator. Only by proper instruction can it be moved to a safe place where it can be deliberately exploded or where the third automatic timer can be allowed to detonate it. There are three automatic timers each set for three different explosion times. Only if you comply with the instructions in this letter will you be given instructions on how to disconnect the first two automatic timers and how to move the bomb to a place where it can be exploded safely. Warning. I repeat, do not try to move, disarm, or enter this bomb. It will explode. If exploded, this bomb contains enough TNT to severely damage Harris across the street. This should give you some idea of the amount of TNT contained within this box. It is full of TNT. It is our advice to cordon off a minimum of 1,200 feet radius and remove all people from that area. Demands. We demand $3 million in used $100 bills. They must be unmarked, unbugged, and chemically untreated. If we find anything wrong with the money, we will stop all instructions for moving the bomb. Thank you, Mike, and your ominous voice. You're awesome. The security guard quickly contacted the Douglas County Sheriff's Department, who in turn called the Tahoe Douglas Bomb Squad. The bomb, which entered the building as the quote-unquote new copy machine, was huge. It consisted of two large like sections or almost like boxes. Yeah, so go to our social medias, check those out. We will have pictures of the bomb that you will want to see. Definitely want to see. Mm-hmm. One section was large and like rectangled shape. It sat upon like four small wooden blocks. Do you remember they put the machine the so-called copy machine on top of those four wooden blocks. Right. The other was smaller, rectangular, and secured to the top of the larger section. This section was covered by 28 identical toggle switches, each labeled with a number printed on a white label maker sticker. All of the switches were set on the down position, except for switch labeled 23. It was set on the up position. So Mel, are you familiar with the toggle switch? Yes. Yeah, so they're all down except for just that one. Law enforcement had no idea what these switches were for or what would happen if they were touched. The letter claimed that the device had 1,000 pounds of TNT wired to a detonator and had three separate timers that could not be moved or disarmed. 
He demanded $3 million in cash, which today is equivalent to almost $11 million. Wow, so this bomber is not messing around. No, that is a lot of money mm -hmm. and that is a lot of TNT. That is a lot of TNT. The bomb squad arrived and they went right to work. They first confirmed that this was indeed a real bomb. With that confirmation, they called the FBI in. With over 100 casino extortion threats per year in the U.S., the FBI knew what steps needed to be taken, yet they had never dealt with a bomb this size before. Um, I would think that casinos don't take these threats very lightly. They have yeah. a lot of cash flowing around those a casinos. A lot of cash. Not to mention, I mean, the vaults. We've all seen Ocean's Eleven. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but that actually, I'll tell you though, that number surprised me. With over 100 a year in 1980, that's a lot. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that number is today. We'll, have to, we'll have to look that yeah. up. The two agents that headed up the operation were Herb Hawkins, special agent in charge with the FBI, and Bill Jonke, special agent. Law enforcement immediately started an evacuation of the Harvey Hotel. All 600 of the registered guests were escorted to a makeshift shelter at the local high school and waited to be questioned. Harvey's and all the surrounding casinos, resorts, hotels, and shops. I mean, it's a busy area of Stateline. They were all evacuated, and many of the roads there in Stateline were completely shut down. Businesses boarded up windows and did what they could to protect their property. The town was practically at a standstill and prepared for the worst. You will notice in the pictures that we posted on our social medias, bomb squad members chose not to wear the bulky bomb suits for protection. So you know those bomb suits, they almost look like huge beekeeper suits. Yeah, so why do you think they chose not to wear those? Because there was really no reason to wear it. If the bomb detonated, it was so powerful, nothing would be left. Oh, that is so scary. And the people that go into these situations, I am so thankful for them, but I can't imagine putting myself oh. in that situation. That is such brave work for them to be doing. It's amazing. I'm so glad that there are people that can handle these high-pressure situations. Yeah, so they got right to work. First, the bomb was x-rayed. Due to its huge size, the technicians examined it in three sections, a one-third at a time. Mm -hmm. They were looking for anything, any shred of detail to help them understand the design of the bomb. So they were trying to figure out what kind of explosive was inside. Was the device chemical? Was it TNT? Dynamite? It could be nuclear. How deadly was it? I mean... You'd think a bomb is a bomb is a bomb. No, there's lots of different types of bomb. The letter did say it was TNT, but who knows? You know, they took over 200 x-rays, thoroughly photographed the device, and dusted it for fingerprints. They carefully chipped a small sample of the paint that coated the metal casing and found a small droplet of blood on one corner of the device. The x-rays, photographs, fingerprints, paint, and the blood sample were all rushed to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. So while the lab got to work in D.C., the bomb squad on the ground began to attempt to disarm this device. Technicians discovered that the bottom three-fourths of the larger section was incredibly dense. And so the x-ray could not penetrate through that dense bottom material. One thing they could clearly identify in the bomb, though, were wires leading into the dense material. So I don't know a lot about bombs, but I have watched plenty of shows that have them. <laughs> so I do know that wires, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The FBI called in the help of the scientific minds at NEST, which stands for the Nuclear Energy Search Team. 
Nest analyzed the x-rays in the effort to try and estimate the damage that this bomb could cause. Yeah, they estimated a blast radius of 1,500 to 2,500 feet. The innermost of that uh, of that measurement, that innermost 800 feet, would be total destruction, total annihilation. FBI agents also had their eyes on the guests inside of Harvey's. It's common to find bombers, arsonists, and other criminals close to the crime scene. Many like to watch the chaos that they have created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they get a rush from watching it. Yeah. So agents interviewed every single person that was in Harvey's Casino and Hotel at the time. I think earlier we said 600, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they would even get lucky, find the bomber or a witness that maybe saw something. They're looking for anything. Yeah, a toll-free hotline was set up asking for tips and hundreds flooded into the FBI. Agents combed through the leads looking for the ones that would be the most promising. While questioning the security guard who talked to the so-called delivery men, they heard some new details. So the guard described three men dressed in white coveralls and driving they were driving a white van. So nowadays we would have the footage of this, right? Especially in casinos, there's so many cameras. We would have probably had some in the hallways, the offices, even the loading dock. We'd yeah. be able to see it all. You're right, especially casinos. There is not a square inch anywhere in a casino that is not fully under surveillance all of the time yeah, yeah. so we probably have pictures of the van the license plate we'd have way more information but mm -hmm. unfortunately back then it was not the case yeah so after analyzing the device as much as they could the bomb squad and fbi agents agreed they would not be able to penetrate or move the device they had only one alternative only one option they must cooperate with the bomber Oh, let's pause for our first break. Thank you, Balance of Nature, for sponsoring Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Melanie, I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Balance of Nature fruits and veggies contain 31 flash-dried fruits and vegetables. 31. They are specifically selected for their combined effectiveness in strengthening the immune system, cell protection, and DNA repair. The fruit capsules contain 16 different fruits, including aloe vera, apple, banana, blueberry, cherry, cranberry, grape, grapefruit, lemon, mango, orange, papaya, pineapple, raspberry, strawberry, and tomato. Well, Melanie, do you need a drink of water after that? That was a long list. Bounce Nature packs so much into their caplets. The veggies include a blend of 15 different pure whole vegetables. In the capsules, you'll find broccoli, cabbage, carrot, cauliflower, cayenne pepper, celery stalk, garlic, kale, onion, shiitake mushrooms, soybean, spinach, wheatgrass, yam, and zucchini. So go and order today so you can start taking your Balance of Nature vitamins. Go to balanceofnature.com and use code REDHANDED. Or you can use the link in our show notes. That's balanceofnature.com, code REDHANDED. Take your vegetables. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Yeah, so the agents and law enforcement knew that they must cooperate with the bomber. 
agents met with Mr. Harvey Gross. Remember, he's the founder and owner of Harvey's Hotel and Casino. They explained that the most likely opportunity to catch the bomber was to meet his demand. Yeah, they needed to get closer. So the note left with the bomb gave clear directions to follow. Here's Mike again with the instructions in the note. Instructions for delivery. The money is to be delivered by helicopter. The helicopter pilot is to park at 2300 hours as close as possible to the LTA building by the light at the Lake Tahoe airport. It is to face the east. The pilot has to be alone and unarmed. The pilot is to get out and stand by the chain link fence gate. He is to wait for further instructions, which will be delivered by a taxi that will be hired. The driver will know nothing. They may also be delivered by a private individual or through the nearby public phone at exactly 010 hours. At 010 hours, the pilot will receive instructions about where to go and what to do. Before the pilot enters the helicopter, he has to take a strong flashlight and shine it around the inside of the helicopter so that it will light up the entire inside. We must be able to see it from a distance with binoculars. We want to be able to see everything that is inside the helicopter so that we can be sure there is no one hiding inside and that there is no contraband inside. Conditions of the business transaction. These conditions must be followed to the letter. Any deviation from these conditions will leave your casino in a shambles. Also, Remember that even a very small earthquake will detonate the bomb, so do not try to delay the delivery of the money. 1. All news media, local or nationwide, will be kept ignorant of the transactions between us and the casino management until the bomb is removed from the building. 2. The helicopter will be manned only by the pilot. He must be unarmed and unbugged. We do not want any misunderstanding which might cause us to have to take lives unnecessarily. 3. Fill the helicopter up completely with gas. 4. The helicopter pilot, after he receives the first instructions, cannot communicate with anyone except the necessary instructions given and taken by the tower. All channels from 11.30 to 17.00 will be monitored. The designer of this bomb will not participate in the exchange, so it will be completely useless to apprehend any person making the exchange because they will not know how it works. They perform their duty for reward. And again, if you don't want to be stuck with a thousand pounds of TNT, do not allow any investigation by local agencies, FBI, or any other investigative agency action before the bomb is removed. If the instructions are violated in any way by any authority, the secret of the handling of the bomb will definitely not be revealed. If the money is received without any problem, six sets of instructions regarding the removal of the bomb will be given to you at different times. The pilot will receive the first set of instructions. He can carry it back with him. If the money is sold to the buyer without complications, you may receive the remaining five sets of instructions one by one via the Kingsbury Post Office by general delivery, or you may receive them all at once. 
The extent of your cooperation will make the difference. If you cooperate fully, it will ensure a very speedy exchange. We don't want to burden your business opportunities or cause more loss of money than is necessary. Attention, there will be no extension or renegotiation. Demands are firm regardless. The transaction has to take place within 24 hours. If you do not comply, we will not contact you again and we will not answer any attempts to contact us. In the event of a double cross, there will be another time sometime in the future when another attempt will be made. We have the ways and means to get another bomb in. To the pilot, the helicopter has to be filled up with gas. Do not come armed with any weapon. Do not bring a shotgun rider. All radio channels will be monitored. You are to have no communication with anyone after you reach the airport. Do not try to be a hero. Arlington is full of them, and they can't even smell the flowers. Follow the orders strictly. You will make five stops, none of which will be at an airfield. You will have ample lighting for landing. All sites are fairly level. One has about two degrees pitch. There will be a clearance of more than 200 feet radius. We don't want any trouble, but we won't run away if you bring it. Happy landing. Thanks again, Mike. Mel, do you have thoughts on that letter? I mean, it's very specific. He knew exactly what he wanted them to do down to every single detail. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Mm-hmm. Um, and happy landing? That's how he signed off? <laughs> I bet the FBI's blood was just boiling reading that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So, while believing that this was the fastest way to find the bomber, the ransom of $3 million was to be delivered to a remote location via helicopter. Harvey was skeptical, but he did trust the FBI agents. He put his foot down about one thing, though. He said that there was no way he was going to give this bomber $3 million. I don't blame him. So, the agents packed several bags with cut-up paper and then topped each bag with cash. I think we've seen a lot of this in movies, you know? Definitely. So the bags contained only $5,000 total. The pilot of the helicopter was key to this operation. He was an experienced agent with a background as a Marine combat pilot. He worked really well in high-stress situation, um, which my brother is a Marine, so shout out to mm -hmm. Brayden for that. Absolutely. Um, I don't work well in high-stress situations, <laughs> so that's why, that's one of the many reasons I'm not a Marine, I guess. Thank you to our armed forces. Yes, yes. for sure. The bomber had forbidden any radio contact during the, the whole drop. So the bomber had forbidden any radio contact during the drop. So the FBI wired the pilot with a listening device. They wanted to be up to the second on the status of the operation. The pilot was instructed to land at a designated spot at South Lake Tahoe Airport no later than 11 p.m. He landed at exactly 11 p.m. The bomber had also said no law enforcement, but... That's not going to happen. That's not likely. The FBI had placed dozens of undercover officers all over the airport, the airport hangars, the control towers. I mean, there was a lot of eyes looking for anyone who may be linked to the bomber. The public telephone at the airport started to ring at exactly 12.05 as instructed in the note. It was the bomber calling. So the pilot ran to the payphone and picked it up. 
he was instructed to look under the shelf of the phone booth. He found a note and read it out loud. Remember, the pilot was wired, so he wanted those listening to be able to hear what the note had to say. Mm -hmm. The bomber gave the location for the drop in a little note. Law enforcement immediately dispatched officers and dozens of unmarked cars sped to the location for backup for that helicopter pilot. The note instructed the pilot to fly west along Highway 50 at the altitude of 500 feet. As described in the note, a strobe light would direct him on the location to land. So 500 feet is an extremely low altitude and very dangerous. I mean, we got to remember, we're in the Tahoe area. We've got lots of mountains, large trees. This had to be really scary for that pilot. Yeah, I mean, good thing he was really well trained and can handle these high stress situations. I would think if, if he can handle combat situations, he can handle this. Yeah. Above the helicopter, at around the elevation of 2,000 feet, an airplane from the SWAT team flew for added security. So the helicopter pilot searched and searched the location for the strobe light, but he could not see anything as he circled the area over and over again. Just to be certain he wasn't missing, he flew down, get this Mel, to 250 feet elevation. This was a very risky move. He's going through... Tahoe with all of these huge trays. What a brave guy. Mm-hmm. The helicopter was literally scraping the tops of these huge pine trees, and the pilot risked his life to help capture this bomber. The helicopter was literally scraping the tops of huge pine trees, and the pilot risked his life to help capture the bomber. So nothing, no strobe light at around 4 a.m. And with no further word from the bomber, he returned to the airport. The operation had failed. Investigators raided the telephone booth and took every fingerprint they could find. They interviewed everyone at the airport looking for any type of a witness. No new evidence or leads were discovered. That has to be so frustrating. After all of that work, after putting themselves at so much risk, all of that backup, and to have no results. Oh, it's so frustrating, especially since they had agreed, they fully agreed to just pay it, you know, and a no-show. Oh. So Robert List, the governor of Nevada, even held a press conference pleading for help from the public. Someone somewhere knew something. The following day, Wednesday, was completely silent. Law enforcement nor Harvey officials heard anything from their bomber. They were running out of options. I mean, they have a live bomb sitting in the middle of this city. Do they dare move the bomb? Even if they succeed in moving it, which seems like a slight possibility, what would what good would it do to move it? Where are they going to put it? Yeah. Upon detonation, the same damage would still be inflicted on state line. Plus, it was still unknown what type of detonation device was used on this bomb. It literally could blow up at any second. Mm-hmm. Was it either a timer or was it on a remote control type of a, a switch? They had no idea. There were still so many unknowns around this bomb. Then one team member stepped forward with an idea. What if they could use explosives, a very small amount, and separate the top box, which held the detonation device, from the lower box, which held all of the explosives? It'd almost be like separating like the brain of the bomb from the explosives. That's actually a really good idea. But it seems dangerous it as seems well. It seems really dangerous. But that does make sense. If they could just separate the two parts of the device, they could neutralize it. Definitely. So if the plan worked, it would they would be separated. The FBI turned to Mr. Harvey Gross. Remember, he's the owner and president of Harvey's Hotel. And with tears in his eyes, 
he agreed to the plan. He told the FBI, I just don't want anyone hurt. If the bomb goes off, I can rebuild my casino. I just don't want anyone hurt. What a good guy. What a good guy. The bomb squad went forward with the risky plan. They set up a linear charge around the smaller top portion of the device. Then they attached a small charge to a long, long, long detonator cord that was fed through the window. That better be a long detonator cord. Oh my gosh, that had to be Mm -hmm. so long. The agents prepared to detonate the charge from a safe distance. They were risking everything, but their backs were against the wall. Law enforcement did all they could to prepare the community for what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the citizens and the tourists, they handled the situation as best they knew how. And that was by making a bet out of the situation. Casinos in the neighboring cities were filled with gamblers and hotel guests who were, Mel, they were actually placing bets on the bomb outcome. I mean, they had come to gamble, so this is what they were gambling on. Yeah. The houses, the different casinos were actually taking bets. Would it go off? And if yes, when would it go off? They placed their bets and then watched the live news feed. So, on Wednesday, August 27, 1980, at 3.55 p.m., Sheriff Jerry Maple broadcasted a warning that the disarming attempt was about to begin. Countdown from five. Mel, crush your fingers. Five. Four, three, two, Thirty-three hours after the bomb was placed in Harvey's casino, it exploded. The hotel and casino crumbled. The plan had failed. Mel, you may have heard on that recording there that you heard people like shouting and clapping. Yeah, they were cheering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the crowd of gawkers cheered as the as it exploded. You know, they got swept up in the excitement of the huge explosion. Um, But yeah, Harvey's casino was left with a five-story crater. Pieces of the device, rebar, concrete, desks, and gambling chips littered what was left of Harvey's. You could see TV sets swinging by electrical cords and toilets hanging by the pipes. But not one person was injured, not even a single scratch. I love hearing that type Mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. Once the building was cleared and the FBI knew it wouldn't collapse any further, the agents and bomb squad went looking for clues from the detonated bomb. So this is amazing. They went piece by piece on their hands and knees and gathered evidence. The crime scene was now the key to finding out the bombers. And can I just say, I think it's amazing that looking through all that debris, all we see is debris. They see evidence. I think it's amazing. Casino owner Harvey Gross, ever the shrewd businessman, wanted to open up the portion of the casino that wasn't in complete ruins. So he had a giant wall of windows constructed so his customers could watch the FBI hard at work. For months, patrons watched the tedious search for evidence between hands of poker and rolls of dice at my craps table. Mel, would you spend a little more money at the casino if you could watch the FBI work? I think that would be so cool, to be honest. I'm so intrigued by the work that they do. So, yes, he totally would have gotten me with yeah, this. Yeah, okay. So would we, you have sat there longer? I totally would. 
absolutely. Yeah. After the first 40 days of work, the technicians were able to locate about 108 pounds of the 800-pound bomb. That's about one-eighth of the bomb. Each piece was carefully shipped to the FBI lab in D.C. Mm -hmm. The FBI turned to the Behavioral Science Unit, which I love the famous profilers of the FBI. So this was their profile description of the Harvey Bomber. We'll go through it together. Late 30s to early 40s. Male. He had to have some sort of bomb experience. Mm -hmm. He was egocentric. And we're talking self-centered and selfish. He doesn't like to get too close to his destruction. And they believe that something other than money was the main motivator in his plans. So let's remember this and let's see how close these profiles were when we get to the end Ooh, of the let's story. Let's do it. That sounds great. In Reno, 40 miles north of State Line, four more casinos received bomb threats. Investigators searched, but no bombs were found after these threats. They were all copycats. Yeah, which isn't a huge surprise, yeah. The FBI followed hundreds of leads that hit dead end after dead end after dead end for weeks until in early September, a promising lead did come in through the hotline. Three former employees of a jet aircraft plant had just relocated to Reno before the bombing. The bomb had many electronic components that resembled aircraft parts. Yeah, the three men fit the profile. They had experience. They had access to these parts. They were all male, and in, they were in their late 30s, early 40s. Sounds perfect. The FBI spent dozens of hours investigating this group until they were eliminated. These men were not involved. Can you imagine just how disappointed they must have felt after this? They, they did sound really promising, really, yeah. really promising. But then a little bit later, they hit jackpot. So let's go ahead and take our another sponsor break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Yeah. They finally found the tip they had waited for. For over a month, this tip sat and was not followed up by the investigators. They just had so many tips. I can imagine. They have to chase every single one. Yeah, that mm -hmm. is hard. Finally, an agent read the tip, and it did seem really promising. So on the early morning of August 26th, the day of the bomb delivery, at about 4 a.m., motel owner Nancy Domingo of South Lake Tahoe's Balaho Motel heard a commotion in the parking lot. She said she saw two to three people in white overalls trying to start the engine of a white van. She remembered one of the men in the group particularly because he had made some rude comments towards her that day. So she thought their behavior was just off. And she's a smart girl. She copied down their license plate. Good for her. I gotta share. I don't know if anyone else has done this out here. I remember being little. And going on family vacation, being in my parents' minivan for hours and hours, and I would see like a suspicious car. 
and I would like jot down the license plates. I still do it. I take pictures now. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm like, it'll be in my phone. I take pictures if something's off. Yeah, if something just seems a little like hinky, I just like jot down that license plate and make a note in my head. I One of these days, I may just like crack open an old case, you know? I'm sure you will, <laughs> Becky, I'm sure. Sorry about this side story, but like I'm totally feeling Nancy Domingo. Yeah. The men in the white coveralls got the van started and drove away. This all happened one hour before the bomb was delivered to Harvey's in-state line. The FBI listened to her story and ran the name given for the hotel registration. It came back as a fake name. Luckily, Nancy had kept that note with the license plate number. The California Department of Motor Vehicle gave the FBI the name of the owner of the white van, John Burgess Sr. from Clovis, California. Agents from the Fresno FBI office went to pay Mr. Burgess a little visit. Burgess was not an impressive figure. They found him living in a home with five other roommates. The house was littered with crushed beer cans and empty bags of marijuana, not the type of home you pictured a bomb-building mastermind to be living in. Yeah, Burgess answered the FBI's questions as best as he could. He claimed to not know anything about the bombing. He said he owned a white van, but his son, John Waldo Burgess Jr., had it, and he was the main driver of the van. Agents went to Fresno to visit with John Jr. He admitted to the FBI that he was in Tahoe on the day of the bombing, he said he had traveled there to look for a good place to grow marijuana. Well, that's an interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> now, this sounded pretty fishy to the agents, which, Mel, are you surprised? No, no not at all. Uh -uh. So, either John Jr. was lying or he was an idiot. Lake Tahoe is at an elevation of 6,200 at the minimum. You can't grow weed in cold weather. I think everyone knows that. So, with the high elevation and the cold climate... You know, you're not, you can't, you can't grow marijuana in that climate. This was a bad lie. Mm -hmm. The agents were pretty certain that he was lying, but they did not believe he was the bomber. He was just 18 years old. He seemed to lack the drive and intelligence needed to develop the device. The FBI believed they were close, but was in need of more evidence. In early 1981, the FBI increased the reward from 250000 to 500000 and asked the news media to carry the message out to the public. It worked. Just a couple of days later, they got a tip. A young man called into the Fresno office and said, You are close, but you're not on the right guy. It's not the son. It's John Burgess Sr. Mm, the tipster's identity? Well, leads can often bloom from broken relationships, as we've heard time and time again. It was discovered the tipster was the new boyfriend of John Jr.'s ex-girlfriend. I love this. Mel, people just can't, can't keep their mouths shut, can they? No, they just want to talk and mm -hmm. gossip about it. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. The FBI and task force moved quickly. Within days, the investigation headquarters was moved from Stateline, Nevada to Fresno, California, the FBI sent in an additional 40 agents for support. Investigators long had guessed that the bomber was supported by family. Like only family can usually keep quiet for that long. You know, during a high-profile investigation, this was constantly on the news, in papers. Now, like they say, blood is thicker than water, Mel. Remember, John Burgess Sr. was visited by the FBI before, and he had pointed them in the direction of his son. 
So who was this man? And was he the bomber? Um, he's definitely not a good father to point the finger at his son. Yeah, you tried to blame his son. I mean, like, not father of the year there. Definitely mm-hmm. not. So the task force interviewed and performed background checks on not only John, but his relatives and friends. Uh, John's world was now under heavy surveillance all the time. Burgess was born in Hungary in 1922. Growing up in a war-torn country shaped his childhood and adolescence and ingrained a patriotic spirit. He participated in the Hungarian Revolution against the Soviets. Burgess was a well-known and respected war hero in his country. Um, He had flown many very successful missions against the Soviet forces. He became a decorated revolutionist. He was captured by the Soviets on April 27, 1948, and sentenced to 25 years of hard labor in a Siberian POW camp. Luckily, he was released after eight and a half years and returned to Hungary. Yeah, Yeah, so those POW camps, it stands for prisoners of war, and they had deplorable conditions in them. After the torture he had endured, I don't think anyone expected him to, but he chose to continue the fight. He worked extensively with explosives, Melanie, Mm -hmm. explosives for the Hungarian revolutionists until he was recaptured again in 1956. He was nearly shot on sight until he impressed the Soviet soldiers with his fluent Russian language skills. Burgess was able to talk his way out of death that day. Just three days later, he managed to escape his captors with the help of friends. So he traveled west across Europe and served as a Red Cross interpreter. In 1957, Burgess and his young wife, Elizabeth, immigrated to the United States and settled for a short time in New Jersey. Wow, he, up until this point, has lived a pretty incredible life. So far. He he was a war hero, and he was just trying to defend his country against, you know, the the growing uh, USSR. Yeah. With a promise of a job offer, they made their way to California, where Burgess was very successful in business. He worked as a steel manufacturer, a landscaper, and a restaurant owner. Burgess and Elizabeth had two sons, John Walder Jr. and James. Unfortunately, the American dream of the heroic immigrant and his happy family story ends here. John Jr. wrote a memoir and shared the dark truth of their family life. His father, Burgess Sr., would regularly beat his mother within an inch of her life. Burgess Sr. was emotionally abusive to his sons and would work the boys to exhaustion. The boys did not have the time and energy to pursue their education fully. They were just always pulled into work by their father. The couple divorced in 1973, but Elizabeth had endured too much during her short life. She died by suicide less than two years later by overdose of alcohol and Valium. After his ex-wife's death, Burgess Sr. seemed to fall into an even darker existence. He began gambling for hours on end. And in 1978, his restaurant business mysteriously burned down. Research is inconclusive if this was arson. I mean, knowing the things that we know about him, it seems like there's probably a good chance that it was. Don't you think? Pretty fishy. Mm -hmm, I agree. Burgess was awarded $355,000 as the insurance settlement and lost the entire amount at the blackjack table within months. 
By October 1979, Burgess had sold all he owned and ended up in a rented studio apartment in Stateline, Nevada. He spent most of his days and nights at the casino. During the winter of 1979 and into 1980, Burgess had found a new purpose and focus for his life. He told his sons he was planning to build a bomb that would be unstoppable. He wanted to humiliate and hold control over the casino that had cheated and taken so much from him. He wanted payback for what he had lost. Yeah, during the months of planning and building his device, things got only worse for Burgess. In March of 1980, the IRS filed suit against him for $34,000 in back taxes. I mean, if he wasn't bitter about how his life was going before, I'm sure that he is now. Mm-hmm. Especially being a degenerate gambler. Yes. Mm-hmm. He also owed Harvey's Casino $15,000 in unpaid gambling losses. By June of 1980, less than two months before the bombing, Burgess enlisted his two sons to help him steal the needed explosives. They found what they needed at Helms Power Plant located in the mountains just east of California's Shaver Lake. They were able to steal over 1,200 pounds of dynamite from a construction site in the power plant. From June to August, Burgess spent all of his time on his passion project, building an unbeatable bomb. He had the expertise, intelligence, and the drive to succeed. The FBI was now focused on getting information and evidence from Burgess and his family and friends. Special Agent Bill Jonke visited Burgess's home and asked for a chat. Mel, literally every single day for weeks. And good for him. Mm-hmm. Some days Burgess would yell and scream and practically chase the agents away. Other days, he would invite the agents in and talk about his life and his accomplishments. Burgess was egotistical, and the agents knew how to use that to their advantage. He would talk endlessly about his intelligence and his skills and would just go on and on about himself. While interviewing and checking the background of the Burgess family members, the FBI came across a cousin who owned a large turkey ranch outside of Fresno. Agents paid him a visit and the cousin showed them a problem that John Burgess had recently solved for him. So feeding all those turkeys was a challenge. So Burgess had built his cousin a complex feeding mechanism. This automated feeder had a large panel of toggle switches. Hmm, Does that sound familiar? It does sound familiar. When the agents saw it, they were stunned. It was identical to the bomb that was placed at Harvey's Casino. The FBI was ready to turn up the pressure, so they approached the Burgess' two sons, John Jr. and James. The FBI laid out the evidence that they had gathered and told the two that if they did not cooperate, they would spend time in jail. There wasn't much they could do. John Jr. and James began to share what they knew, which pretty much was everything. Initially, Burgess asked both of his sons to participate in the bombing and the extortion. They did refuse at first, but then decided to help their father with the construction of the bomb. They would not help with the delivery. And that just really sucks that this father would put his son in that in sons in that situation that he would even want to involve him in this criminal act. Again, he's not winning any Father of the Year awards. No, he is not. So for help with the transportation, Burgess turned to two employees from his former landscaping company that he owned. Willis Bill Brown and Terry Lee Hall participated by 
acting as the so-called delivery men. So the three guys in the white coveralls, Mm -hmm. it sounds like it must have been Burgess, Senior, Brown, and Hall. Yeah, I think so. The men were paid between $100 and $2,000. Different sources say different amounts um, for their participation. John Jr. and James told agents that Burgess's girlfriend, Ella Joan Williams, wrote and typed the extortion letter. The brothers led the authorities to a dry creek bed just outside of Fresno, where their father had hid the extra dynamite that wasn't used for the Harvey, Harvey bombing. Do you want me to read? Yeah. Yeah. The brothers led the authorities to a dry creek bed just outside of Fresno, where their father had hid the extra dynamite that wasn't used for the Harvey bombing. Yes, you did hear that right. The extra dynamite. Burgess Sr. had planned on building additional bombs after the success of his bomb at Harvey's. So, August 16, 1981, almost one year after planting the bomb uh, at Harvey's Casino, John Burgess Jr., Willis Bill Brown, and Terry Lee Hall were arrested and charged with commercial extortion and conspiracy. John Jr. and James Burgess pled guilty to conspiracy and sentenced to probation. Burgess Sr. was convicted of federal extortion and bombing charges on October 22, 1982. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah, he's not getting out ever. I I am glad, though, that John Jr. and James um, was able to just, their sentence was just the probation. Yeah, so all of those charges for Burgess Sr. were all federal charges, which means federal prison, which means just a stricter sentence all around. So the FBI and ATF have jurisdiction or purview over any type of explosive under federal law. So automatically it becomes a federal crime and a case. So finally, in 1983, Burgess's girlfriend, Ella Joan Williams, was convicted of attempted extortion, conspiracy, and interstate travel in aid of extortion. Recalling the night of the failed cash drop, John Jr. recalled his father being devastated after he was unable to flag down the helicopter during the attempted money drop. He was angry and desperate for revenge and he felt like he had failed. So he was out there with a strobe light trying to get the money. So I wonder if the strobe light failed to work or if he just didn't see it. Yeah. At 250 feet, I would think you'd see a strobe light. Yeah, you you would think think so. Yeah, so. Yeah, so John Jr. said when Burgess saw the explosion on television of his bomb and the destruction he had caused, his father immediately, quote unquote, perked up. Burgess Sr. was so proud, he felt he had done well and had beaten the authorities and the casino. In his eyes, the destruction of Harvey's was his biggest success. After all the evidence was researched, the authorities discovered Burgess's bomb was undefeatable. Yeah, it contained eight fusing systems, including the timer, anti-motion switch, and a float mechanism. The bomb itself was contained in a metal box with flathead screws around the perimeter of the lid. Each screw was attached to a wire and contacts. So, if disturbed in any way, the bomb would have detonated it. So, I want to add in really quick, if anyone from the government is listening, is listening, I am not trying to build a bomb. 
I did a lot of Google searches during this research. I learned a lot about bombs. I like Googled what every mechanism was for. So if anyone looks at your computer, you look sketchy. You know what? With all the research I do, my Google history is scary. I bet it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Mel, what do you think? In hindsight, do you think it was the best decision that they didn't try to move it? Yeah, I definitely think so. I know it caused a lot of destruction, but nobody was hurt. And that's the most important thing, right? I agree. Mm -hmm. Also, the explosives in the bomb were wrapped in rubber and metal. If the lower portion of the bomb was disrupted by anything, for example, a drill, it would detonate. Yeah, it really was an unbeatable bomb. There was no way of getting around this bomb exploding at some point in time. Um, Harvey lost a building, but like you said, Mel, no no one lost their life. No one was hurt. Harvey Gross rebuilt his casino and hotel bigger and better. It's still in operation to this day. So I found it on Google. It's rated with 3.9 stars out of 5 and entertains hundreds of thousands each year. So go and take a vacation at a historic bomb location, Mel. We should go. Should we do a girls weekend at Harvey's? Let's do it. Let's that do sounds it. like fun. <laughs> At 74, Burgess Sr. died of liver cancer at the Southern Nevada Correctional Center exactly 16 years and one day after the bombing. So, should we go back and see how accurate our profilers were? Let's do it. So, they said they thought he was late 30s to early 40s. This was wrong. Burgess Sr. was 58. Mm. So, they said male. Yes, he was a man. Yep. He had some sort of bomb experience. Uh, Yes, he was in the Hungarian Revolution. Mm -hmm. I think we can definitely say he was egocentric, self-centered, and selfish. Yes, for sure. We learned that from the stories of his poor family. Yeah. He doesn't like to get too close to his destruction. This was true. He didn't wait around at Harvey's after dropping off the bomb. Which I wouldn't have been surprised at all. If the bomb maker wanted to hang out there at the casino. To see it go off. But he did enjoy watching it on TV. He did, but not too close. But not too close. Mm -hmm. So something other than money was the main motivator. This is true. Um, This was all about revenge for him. I think he got just as much pleasure out of just seeing the destruction and seeing what what problem he had caused, what chaos. Yeah. You know, I think the money would have just been sugar on top. I agree. He said that the, he felt like the casino had stolen his money Mm -hmm. and that the world owed him something. Mm -hmm. So this story is both happy and sad, don't you think? I, we tell a lot of stories and most of them end up with somebody dying. So it is good to hear one that nobody was hurt. That's true. I think this is our first zero fatality story. I know. So it's good every once in a while. There is some sad too, but I am happy to hear no one was hurt yeah i it's sad to me because while i was researching burgess senior i just his he just came across as passionate and heroic during his younger days back in hungary i mean he served his country he fought with his friends you know side by side so it was just it was really sad to me to see him unravel and treat his family terribly it's just, it's too bad. It's too bad. Yeah, that part of it is is really, really sad. And mm-hmm. his whole family fell apart because of it. And his poor ex-wife. Yeah, and, and hopefully, I wasn't able to find any information, but hopefully his sons are doing great out there making good of their lives. Yeah, I hope so. So if you do have a gambling addiction, it's not something to be ashamed of. There is help out there. You can reach out to gamblersanonymous.org. Um, also, we do want to refer you to the suicide and uh, mental health hotline, which is 988 if you need that as well. 
Yeah. So thank you again for being here with us. Make sure you like, share, spread it out. We appreciate all the support and love. So until next time, keep your hands clean. Hey, thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And please go follow us on our social medias. Um, We'd love to hear your comments and we want you to see all the pictures and the sources that we've posted. Our Instagram and our Facebook again are Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. And don't forget to email us. Yes. What's that email? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Send us your case recommendations from your local community. Have a great day.